0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is part two of our conversation with Paul Volcker. In part one, we covered Volcker's early career through his time in Richard Nixon's Treasury Department and his role in the end of the Bretton Woods monetary system. In part two, we're going to start with Volcker's appointment to be the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in the mid-1970s, his famous tenure as chair of the Fed in the 1980s, and what he's been doing and thinking lately. And yes, that includes his thoughts on the current financial system and monetary policy. Here it is. So you're, you're at this role, uh, at Treasury, until 1975. And here's where I want to ask you a bit about Arthur Burns. Burns replaced at the Fed, a personal hero of yours, uh, William McChesney Martin, right? He had been, Burns had been a counselor, uh, an economic counselor to Nixon himself. He was against gold convertibility being suspended uh, during the time that you were there at Treasury. And he also made a famous statement about monetary policy which was that monetary policy is made in Washington, not in Paris. And you yes. were a little bit disheartened by that because you right. thought that international concerns should be taken into account. Well, how, how would you, how would you define well, your relationship with uh, well, uh, Arthur, Arthur Burns?
1: Arthur uh, was a famous professor of economics. And he was, of course, my elder. Uh, and I respected his, his economics and his, he was a particular. he was a specialist in business conditions and, and uh, Economic cycles, that was his specialty. And I gave him a lot of weight in that area. In that area? (laughs) Yeah, see, financial markets were not his thing. He thought they were, he thought everything was. But, uh, you know, he was totally unrealistic in thinking that we could negotiate a big exchange rate change and sustain gold in the middle of the system and so forth. It was just, to me, it just (laughs) was not sensible. And then when we did make a negotiation to change the exchange rates, as you referred to this meeting in, in Paris when uh, a logical question at the press was, okay, you've made all these changes now. Uh, are you going to conduct monetary policy in a way that's supportive of these changes? And Arthur takes the microphone from George Schultz who was there, and I want you all to know that monetary policy is made in the United States, not in Paris, which is not exactly the... I, I, I had to argue.
0: Not the most cosmopolitan thing <laughs> no, no, uh, well, that Fed chair ever
1: said. I mean, I, we had a meeting with Arthur, George uh, Schultz and I in, in Paris before the final meeting here to sure whether we could put it together again. The author would say, yes, we got to put it together again. Say, yes, we got to return the fixed rates. We got to do it. I said, Arthur, if we're going to put it together again, first thing you got to do is get on a plane, go back to Washington, and tighten money, because there's no way you can hold us together with the monetary policy we now have. He was not ready, (laughs) of course, to do that. But anyway, there we were. For reasons I never quite figured out, Arthur, this is a few years later, just got after me, after me, after me to become president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York.
0: Right. This is this is what's interesting is that you yeah. guys had disagreed on a few ideas, yeah, I, I but he understand it. he wanted you to be the New York Fed president, knowing that you might disagree with uh, with him once you were there.
1: Yes, he must have. But I, uh, so I don't know whether he thought this was a way to get me out of the way, or what. I I, I couldn't. Anyway, I uh, I finally yielded when I was really anxious to get back in the private sector.
0: Uh, you were anxious to get back into the private sector, but you still agreed to become well, a private president. Well, he finally, I,
1: you know, he, I guess I was weak. I couldn't get myself to say no. <laughs> 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 so maybe at the end, I
0: don't know. While you were uh, the New York Fed president, uh, how often would you say you disagreed with the rest of the uh, FOMC in terms of the appropriate course for monetary well, policy?
1: Well, The FDIC was, you know, pretty well split during a lot of that period. I'm not sure, looking back, I, as to whether I actually dissented when when uh, Burns was still the chairman, but I. I disagreed. whether <laughs> I actually dissented, her how many times I don't remember. Then Miller became chairman, and I began dissenting <laughs> virtually every meeting, which is unusual because the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York likes to line himself up with the chairman of the system to you know to show some unity and credibility and so forth. But uh, there was a kind of a split on the committee and a lot of the banks were more in favor of tightening than the reserve board members were
0: more in favor of tightening okay yeah, did did that them. did that influence your views at all on the necessity of having a consensus uh, on the board, or did you think that was a healthy thing to have opposing voices uh, speaking loudly?
1: Well, if you're the chairman, you'd always like to have a consensus. you were opposed. You think it's a healthy <laughs> thing to oppose. Right. <laughs> There's right. a little too much opposition these days. Right. Now they have the system. They oppose in public before the meeting, but they don't oppose at the meeting. Okay. I, I don't <laughs> cry. It's, it's a, the reverse of what you had back reverse, then, example. right?
0: Okay. Uh nineteen seventy nine, after a very brief uh period in which William Miller uh was the Fed Chair, he ends up being reappointed to Carter's Treasury Department. Appointed. Uh how how confident were you that you would be tapped to be the next uh Fed Chair from your role at at the I New wasn't York confident Fed? At all. No? Uh, you know,
1: I, I didn't really think about it. When Burns left, I was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of America, New York, it is logical that you would Simply, uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. I'd been in the Treasury. I was pretty well known. That it, it would not have been a surprise to be uh, nominated as uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, but of course, it wasn't. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't. Uh, I didn't know Carter. I didn't. Uh, it was not particularly. Uh, Oh, I guess Blumenthal was Secretary of the Treasury. I, mean, I I had no great expectation, but it would not have been a surprise. When the second thing came up, when Miller was made Secretary of the Treasury, it was done rather suddenly. Nobody was expecting that. And there was suddenly an opening in the Federal Reserve that nobody... Had expected. Nobody had expected. Nobody knew anything about it. I didn't have any particular expectation. It was just it was a matter of just a few days. So I didn't have, I did not have... I was... I was surprised when I got a telephone call.
0: <laughs> so you start at the at the Fed. Um, did you know that immediately, because you were new there, that you wanted to move as quickly as possible to tighten policy uh, at a pace that had outstripped what had happened there before? Uh, and how hard was it to convince uh, the rest of the FOMC to go along with you?
1: Well, I forget my timing a little bit here. There had been a change in the discount rate either – immediately after I became chairman, or a few days before I became chairman. And then, I didn't think it was enough, so we had another change, well, I guess in late August or early September, I don't remember. But I, I thought this, you know, two big discount rate changes within the space of a month or so, I thought this would begin making an impression on the market. Didn't make any impression on the market at all, because the discount rate is just a Board of Governors vote, and it was four to three. And that hadn't worried me maybe as much as it should because they knew I had four boats. We could have gone out and raced it again two weeks later and they'd still have four (laughs) boats. But the market said, okay, it's four to three. That's the last change we'll see. It's gotten too close, too controversial. There won't be any more. So this is really what stimulated me is that we've got to do something to get more unity here and get a tougher policy approach. So that was the beginning of changing the way we were going about policy, which did command unanimity for a variety of reasons. It was not unlike what some of the presidents in prior years had been advocating. Some of them forgot about it. They were probably different. But it was a version of what some of them had been advocated. And I I guess inflation kept getting worse, and I guess uh, they didn't well, we did, we did have a discount rate change at the same time, but I think they were convinced that with the change in approach, they ought to give it a chance. So we had unanimity. And it was important that unanimity.
0: Your monetary policy approach throughout your years as Fed chair is pretty well known by now that uh, you had to get aggressive to bring down inflation, uh, and you did. And there were a lot of complaints at the time from different parts of the economy. There were all these symbolic things happening where farmers were – Driving tractors onto the onto the lawn in front of your offices. I don't want to go through the details of all that too much. I just want to ask if it was hard on you personally, or maybe even on your family, as a lot of the kind of complaints really ratcheted up. And there were even there was even some talk in Congress about limiting uh, central bank independence. Was it hard on you personally to withstand all that?
1: Well, there was one congressional, former congressional friend that got up every session of Congress and asked for my impeachment every day for two years. And asked for your years. impeachment. <laughs> I... Do you remember who it was? Yes, Henry Gonzalez. I Henry Gonzalez? Yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? Anyway, look, I'm getting to be an old man. This all happened, what, 30, 40 years ago. And I'll tell you what my, my sense of what it was. Well, first of all, there was a lot of concern in the country about inflation and the poor performance of the country. Carter got voted out of office, <laughs> basically, because of all his concern. He'd gone up on the mountain and fired his secretary of the treasury and others. Malaise was the magic word. And people were unhappy. It's not quite as unhappy as they are now, but there was some of that same feeling. that Stagflation had by the throat, and so people were ready for some change. So this very tough policy and eventually a big recession, there was a feeling, I hold to this day, there was kind of a feeling, look, we're in a very unhappy situation. The Federal Reserve is trying to do something about it. and We use some things, you know, that they could understand we're going to tighten down on the money supply. Milton Friedman had made that a policy. <laughs> yeah. Milton Friedman was not my favorite, but he made this, you know, the slogan for all the right policies. So, the kind of mass of opinion may not have been highly favorable, but it wasn't out for attack. Now, people that got hit, the farmers, you know, somebody can drum them up and get their tractors out there. And the interesting one was the home builders. The home builders are always the ones that are stuck in this kind of tight money situation. And I was very fortunate in having the leadership of the home builders were quite constructive I right? and they kind of understood what was happening and they'd come in and see me and we'd have a conversation. Farmers would come in and see me and we'd make some little change to show them we were sympathetic with what they were doing and farm leaders never let a big, you may have put the tractors around once but and there were community groups that surround us once in a while but the home builders got caught on this uh, thing and send them me 2 by 4s we don't need 2 by 4s anymore, we'll saw them up and send them into the Federal Reserve. But <laughs> it was kind of – you're, you're <laughs> smiling but it was kind of a joke on their part. I right. mean, <laughs> it was showing that they were doing something but it wasn't really. You know some of them said, tighten money, you get rid of inflation. Right. <laughs> but what I remember there which I think was meaningful to me anyway. Uh, the homebuilders asked me to go out and address their convention in Las Vegas in the middle of all this. And I said, okay. And I was out there, I remember, walking toward the auditorium where I had to give this, and I ran into a senator who was not happy with us. And he's quite unhappy with me personally. He said, what are you doing out here? The homebuilders are having a convention, they'll kill you. So I walked from this thing and gave my... Uplifting speech to the home builders and tough things are tough, but let's get through it. They're going to be much better when we've got to do this and get it done. And they all stood up and and collective applause when I got finished, which I think standing applause. There was nobody throwing darts at me and so forth. They were willing to accept the idea that something had to be done and. And someday it would be over and they'd be build homes again. And I think that was the attitude of the country more broadly, which is why the Congress never did pass those resolutions. They talked, but they never did anything. Now, I, I don't know how close to the edge we were, but I, and I did I worry about it? Sure, I worried about it. But
0: uh, There were a couple of other uh, big events during your tenure uh, as Fed Chair. Um One of them was what happened with Latin America, uh, and more specifically, Mexico. At the time, you thought that a possible default uh, from the Mexican government would pose a big threat to uh, the U.S. banking system. What was it that convinced you that the right course of action to take then was to allow the Mexican government to pay off its debts over time and to allow the banks to not have to write down the value uh, of their loans? Uh, What made you think that that was the right course of action then?
1: because they didn't want an international financial crisis to support that. This is in the middle of the recession with interest rates very high. 82, I believe. Uh, 82. Uh, It wasn't just Mexico was uh, the spark in the end, but all the big Latin American countries were in trouble. Against the background, you'd had this big increase in oil prices a few years earlier. Uh, the Middle East was slowing with dollars. They didn't know what to do with the dollars. They were deposited in the big international banks, mostly the American banks, but the big Japanese banks, the big English banks, too. And they didn't make any place to lend it to, so they lent it to Latin America. And it went on for several years, and banks got more and more exposed, and Latin America got more and more exposed. But the banks of all the eager lenders, it was... You know, all these crises have something common. Even small banks in the United States said, "If Citibank is lending, if Chase is lending, why don't I lend too? I'll get in this thing." And today, we got lending. There was this famous story, which I think was true, that the leftist president of Mexico, in the middle of would have been probably 1981, his finance minister went to a bank and said, "Look, we can't keep borrowing like this. We've got to slow it down. or We're going to have a great crisis." And he said, well, I don't know. you you not want to do anything. He sent some of his colleagues, including his son, I guess, story around to ask bankers whether there's any problem here, were they frightened to lend to Mexico, whether they going to No, 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 we're perfectly happy. Keep <laughs> So he fired the finance minister. And then the new finance minister came back, and he was very closely in touch with us during the first half of eighty two he kept telling us what was going on. We had our famous or infamous lemon meringue pie lunches.
0: Lemon meringue pie lunches.
1: <laughs> yeah, I give him lunch at the Federal Reserve and he always come. I like lemon meringue pie. We had lemon meringue pie on Friday. <laughs> but we kept in touch with it, we we could see what was happening, but we didn't know what to do. And finally the bank one bank stopped lending. One one bank stopped lending, they all stopped lending. And so we lent them enough money, we thought, to get them through the summer. It was gonna be a presidential election. No president would in practice become influential in September. That was a Mexican tradition, even though he wouldn't technically be in office for a few more months. So the financial we gotta sweat it out until my friend D. Limit becomes president, and then we'll take stronger action. So we lent them enough the money to do that, but it didn't last. So we had a crisis on our hands in August. The plan that was developed with Mexico and then it was elsewhere. At that point, talk about international cooperation, we got European banks, Japan involved, the IMF involved. We decided that uh, the banks ought to not demand payment in Mexico. All those big banks had more lending to Latin America than their capital, way in excess of their capital. So it wasn't just Mexico. It was Argentina, Brazil, Venezuela, I don't know, Venezuela Colombia, Ecuador. If Mexico blew, they were all going to blow. Uh, well, that's what we assume. And the Mexican finance minister and central banker we were very good, responsible.
0: Good, responsible uh, counterparts in this yeah, game. Yeah,
1: we, we worked at a little show and I, we invited, the difference is we could invite the major Mexican creditors into one room because it was all banks in those. There were maybe 100 banks that were somewhat involved, but there were really only 25 or so American and big international banks that had a big stake. Invited him to a meeting at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, but it was run by the Mexicans. We deliberately stayed away. <laughs> His name was Asu Jesus So Herzog. Was a Mexican finance minister, and he said, "Look, I'm sorry, but we're out of money, and I don't think it's in your interest. It's not in our interest to default. It's not in your interest that we default. What I suggest is that you, you continue to finance us." to roll over the existing debt and maybe provide some other assistance that may be needed and we'll adopt a coherent program with the new president and so forth to take care of you. And uh, he said, I wasn't at the meeting, but is that agreeable? Nobody said anything. He said, thank you for your agreement. (laughs) Uh, I suggest you appoint a, uh, a group to negotiate the result. Yeah. And it was done, it was Bill Rhodes and I was an officer sitting there, he became the banker that negotiated this, and that pattern was then repeated in Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, whatever, Philippines, Morocco, <laughs> I think. And the idea was to nurse them over until they could resume normal payments. And in the end it worked, but it became more and more tenuous as the years passed. And it wasn't until I was out of office... And Nick Brady came along and developed the Brady Plan, which uh, provided some relief. It didn't; the amount of actual financial relief it provided was limited. It provided certainty that they were going to get paid by transferring a lot of these debts and the long-term securities, the par value of which was assured. The interest payments were not assured, but the par value was assured, and it was stretched out over a longer period of time. And either accepted a lower interest rate or they accepted a reduction in par value. And that changed the atmosphere. And off we were to the races. But it took six years or seven years of hand-holding to get through it. And the IMF, was, I mean, IMF played a big role. They would, when they got involved, they said, here's the adjustment you've got to go through. Here's the amount of money you've got to be provided. I won't provide any IMF money until the banks provide money. And that's the way it works.
0: That solution and later on the bailout by the FDIC of Continental Illinois are sometimes characterized as a kind of trade off that you had to face. At the time, you wanted to continue driving inflation out of the system. But if you'd had a lot of financial instability, it would have made it that much harder because, of course, uh, if you're raising rates in an environment where the banking system's falling apart, you'd have additional problems. Do you agree with that characterization that this was kind of a necessary by time, trade-off?
1: By that time, the interest rates were coming down, but uh, they were still relatively high, and our job was not over. Well, St. Continental off the tracks is they were much too aggressive lenders, and they had much too little capital, and there was... They refused to, today the regulators, including me, would have been more aggressive, but in those days it was a question of what authority you had, and I wasn't aggressive enough for the regular, Continental was not even a Federal Reserve Bank, but they refused to raise capital, they refused to tighten up, and they got caught in a bankruptcy of at this bank in Texas, Oklahoma, I guess. Penn Square, I guess it's called, Mm -hmm. which is making these huge oil loans. It was a small bank, and then it would park the loans, most importantly with Continental Illinois, but also with First Security, whatever it was called, in Washington, Chase Manhattan Bank in New York. It was sprinkling bad oil (laughs) loans all around the banking system. And Continental Illinois finally had a run, and we decided for better or worse, that we tried to get the banks to save them without the FDIC having to, in effect, take it over. The banks wouldn't do it, at least enough of them wouldn't do it to make it feasible. So we finally stepped in and guaranteed its liquidity, and the FDIC guaranteed its deposits, and government, in fact took over the bank.
0: One of the, the phrases that we heard a lot of after the more recent round of uh, bank bailouts was moral hazard. Did that come up uh, as you were discussing what to do about Continental Illinois?
1: Yes, but I uh, probably was not. We thought it was bad enough to the bank. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was a mistake or not, but uh, unlike today, these banks had very few securities outside the banking system. The holding company didn't have many securities outside the banking system. Continental had a few. It wasn't very much, but they, the way the rescue was done, the bondholders got saved, and a lot of people would have said, "And it would have been done differently. It would have been better if those bondholders had lost." Now, actually, the way it worked out, is Continental itself had it paid off most of the bondholders when they had enough money to to pay. They. They were paying off bondholders. We would have been better off, as the Treasury claimed at the time, if the bondholders had taken a loss, would have made the point more clearly. Depositors didn't take a loss, but the bondholders took a loss. But in fact, they didn't. So, you know, it was a complaint that we rescued too effectively. <laughs> but who knows what would have happened if uh, they had most of their deposits run insured. This is a big bank with big business deposits. This wasn't saving them. Yeah,
0: they were above the, 100,000. Yeah, the small
1: the deposits would have been saved anyway. but And their deposits included a lot of other banks, which were there. So they were a big so-called correspondent bank where smaller banks kept their, their reserves to Continental Illinois. So we did stabilize the situation. The, bank, the stockholders lost. The bank was sort of restored the viability, but it in the end, it couldn't complete effectively and
0: one last question about your time as a uh, fed chair in nineteen eighty six um There was a famous vote uh where a majority of the oh, board yeah, disagreed yeah. with you, and then it was immediately cancelled but the next by the next year uh you'd essentially decided that you know the f o m c had a lot of Reagan appointees by then and that you would resign uh, I guess I'm wondering if under different circumstances, would you have wanted to have yeah. kept doing the job yeah. or were you yeah. done by yeah. then?
1: Hey, I said this. You can go back and read the Congressional testimony. When I got reappointed, I said I didn't want to serve the full term. I think I put it more politely. <laughs> I do not feel bound. to. This is a pact I made with my wife. Oh, really? <laughs> she didn't like that I was down there in the first place. And she liked it even less. When,
0: when you were reappointed. When
1: I was going to be reappointed. And she said I ought to resign then. So I said, look, I, I don't Feel right leaving if he wants to reappoint me, and I don't feel right about saying no, I'm right in the middle of all this. But I promise you, I'll resign at a reasonable opportunity. Okay. When they had this little revolt, which was a little power, I don't want to get into all that.
0: But, you don't want to get into it. Uh,
1: had a little vote. We spoiled my plan to resign because how could I, in effect, force their resignation and I up and resign? <laughs> Doesn't <make> <laughs> And we had.
0: So, you had to postpone your resignation for a little while longer? So I had to
1: postpone my resignation. By that time, we had a Ron Gate. Uh, what sense did it make resigning six months before my term was up and nine months before my term
0: was up? Okay. So, I said, we'll wait until you. So, you'll just wait until we'll it's wait over? Until it's okay. over. In the uh, late 1970s and 1980s, there was quite a lot of. I guess what you might call deregulatory fervor, right, in multiple sectors of the economy. Uh, but, of course, one of those sectors was in finance. When did you first start thinking that this could be a problem for future financial stability?
1: I don't know when I began thinking, but I was always, I guess, more worried about financial stability than most people. as indicated by continental Illinois and other things. Uh, and and more importantly, the Latin American. When people talk about the great crisis, they, it was a pretty big crisis in Latin America. We headed it off, in this, so to speak, but it was, or the big banks' capital was at stake in that incident. The market's much more complicated and complex now. But uh, we had continuing dialogue with the Treasury then. The Treasury kept wanting to liberalize, liberalize, liberalize and they wanted to get rid of Glass-Steagall. And I'm not sure they wanted to, were willing to take on Glass-Steagall head-on, but they wanted to literally and We had, we kept negotiating with each other what what the Federal Reserve would accept and what the Federal Reserve wouldn't accept. And I can't quite remember what happened, whether it was overtaken by other events, but we had a sort of agreement in principle as to how far we would go and liberalizing what um uh, bank holding companies could do and it never turned into i put have in the responsibility of the treasury to turn it into legislation but they it never got turned into legislation and was uh proposed by the reagan administration uh, and i don't know why not i uh, I don't, I can't, it was not a perfect agreement down to the last sentence, but it was kind of an agreement in principle. Okay, they could do some underwriting of bonds, they shouldn't underwrite stock, they could do insurance brokerage but not insurance business, they could do real estate brokerage but not real estate development. You know, there were the things that we thought were dangerous and speculative, we, that's where we drew the line. But anyhow, I don't think it never got, never got proposed, and I, I don't know, I guess maybe the, I guess Reagan left, and, and Baker was not interested, I guess, and he had other things on his mind. That's interesting. Baker came in, but the Baker Treasury was interested in stability and exchange rates. Uh, they invented the Plaza Agreement, and then later the Louvre Agreement, but they never had a chance to institutionalize it.
0: You spent... A good chunk of the next couple of decades afterwards warning against a lot of financial innovation. There's, of course, the famous line of yours that the only useful one, the only useful innovation was the ATM machine. In the well, aftermath. I said that because my
1: mother used to, my mother, <laughs> sorry. My wife used to say the automatic tele- machines were so much more polite than the tellers. Teller you used to, have to go. that. The automated
0: telemachines machines were better than the were more polite than the ones who actually the human ones. Said,
1: Every time I go to the bank to cash a check, they put down their wicket and say it's lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs>
0: how, how about now? What do you think about financial stability now in the aftermath uh, of the last crisis and Dodd Frank, and of course the uh, the establishment of the Volcker Rule and Tougher capital standards. Uh, What do you think about the stability of the financial system these days? Well, first of all, the
1: financial system is entirely different and more complex than it was in my day. I refer to the Mexican crisis. The creditors were banks. 95% or more of the creditors in Mexico were banks. And it was relatively few banks that had a big chunk. In those days, depending on how you measure it, the banking system was 70% of the financial markets. Now banks are 30%, and you've got all these other trading activities going on, investment banks and others. investment banks are now part of big banks. They're they're all together. Derivatives, some forms of derivatives existed, but credit default swaps did not exist. The interest rate, floating fixed exchange rates were invented, but it wasn't very much used. Money market funds didn't exist or they were very small. All these things have added enormous complications. The things you can do with computer power, which didn't exist back in those days, helped make all this possible. So you're dealing with a situation that's much more interdependent, much more complex than it used to be. So against that background, have we done enough? Well, Dodd-Frank's done a lot to stabilize the banking system. Uh, but not everything, but the capital requirements and other things are obviously tougher. What's been done outside the banking system is more problematical. And here you have a situation where who's in charge? We've got this FSOC now. But they can do something, but they find it very difficult to <laughs> do anything effectively. Federal Reserve formal authority did not extend very far. The SEC has some formal authority, but they don't use it much. In it doesn't go so far. So, I think there's still a lot of problems in the non-banking area, if not in the commercial banking area, including things done within the bank holding company. Uh, it's a nice question you ask, is this little foundation I have? will shortly issue a new report about what remains to be done. Oh, really? Okay. okay.
0: Well, when is it coming out?
1: Soon, I hope. It's been sitting around. <laughs> For too long. It's a, it's a very difficult area is why it sits around. Uh, we're not alone. And uh, it's partly helped by the technology. It's easier to leverage things now than it used to be. And uh, it's a proliferation of repurchase agreements. And we always say repurchase agreements. was mostly overnight money in exchange for treasury bills or treasury notes. Now, God knows what you have a repurchase agreement against, against relatively illiquid securities for overnight settlement, I uh, overnight cash. Lending securities is much more fashionable now than it was 20 years ago. And all these things produce a lot of short-term debt with unknown and illiquid assets on the other side. So you've got a very liquid liability, which might be called upon any day when you are an in inability to deal with a run and you used to worry about runs in banks. Now you worry about runs outside of the banks. And I don't think that that's the heart of the problem that remains.
0: This is, a, I guess, a question about a, a more niche or smaller part of the financial sector, but the Volcker rule came out a little more complicated than you'd hoped, but a lot of the proprietary trading desks uh, have been closed yeah. down. Are you generally happy with uh, the impact well, that I it's think had? It,
1: I think it's had its, its basic effect. You're right. It's a lot more complicated. Maybe it had to be. I don't know. I, it's the trouble with all regulation in the United States. We've got all these lawyers and bankers and regulators to some extent that want every conceivable possibility nailed down and particular language in the regulation uh, or the law, and not much reliance upon judgment or authority of the supervisor. And uh, I would have thought, in, particularly in this area, bankers know what a proprietary trade is. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they know the supervisor who's got any sense knows, too, and it wouldn't require quite so many details. It, it's going to get complicated. Once you say, that you can hedge against the risk, then the question arises, what's a good hedge and what's a bad hedge? And that does take some... It's so defined. it's bound to be complicated, but I don't think it has to be nearly as complicated as it was. They left, in uh, the last minute, a few loopholes for a certain amount of uh, hedge funds and equity funds to be owned by banks, but it's, from the standpoint of the big banks, it's pretty limited. So okay. Yeah, in general, I think the rule is effective. Uh,
0: I want to ask you about uh, monetary policy. Uh, Uh, You wrote in. I don't know anything about monetary policy. (laughs) That's not true. Uh, you, You wrote something interesting in 2013. You said that the dual mandate of the Fed, so its mandate to pursue both full employment and price stability, was, and this is a quote, operationally confusing and ultimately illusory. And then you go on and you write, the basic responsibility of a central bank is to maintain reasonable price stability and by extension to concern itself with the stability of financial markets generally. Uh, it it kind of sounds like
1: nothing to add to
0: those. <laughs> it sounds like you think that uh, the full employment part of uh, the Fed's mandate um, is not helpful. Is that right?
1: It's not helpful to determine as something you balance off against price stability. My argument is very simple. The basic responsibility of the Federal Reserve or any central bank ought to be as a matter of simple morality (laughs) and honesty ought to be to protect the value of the currency and worry about the stability of the market. Doing that provides an environment in which you can take care of unemployment too. You're not going to prevent every business cycle, the ups and downs of the business cycle. But without a kind of basis of stability, in the currency I think you're making it much harder for yourself and for the rest of the government to deal with the employment side. I think it's a little curiosity. Uh there is that formulaic language in the so called Humphrey Hawkins Act. It's the last provision of the act, I think. It's the kind of thing you stick into any act, you know, your responsibility is to serve all purposes as constructively as you can. It says literally, and low interest rates. You forget about the low. We have low interest rates now, but that's not part of the. those are words just as strong the as reasonable yeah. uh, interest rate something what, like that, uh, moderate. What that bill was all about, That was just before I became chairman, but what the big fight was all about and what the bill was all about is that when it, they said, the Federal Reserve has to be stricter on monetary aggregates and and setting out the goal for bank credit and the money supply and conducting policy in that framework and tell the Congress what you're doing. It was all on money supply and credit. If uh, They want to be very religious about the law. They ought to be talking more about the money supply. They don't talk about it at all <laughs> anymore, <laughs> basically. Uh, go back to your first question about changing... Uh, the approach of monetary policy, that was perfectly consistent in a way with the philosophy of the humphrey Hawkins bill, which talked about the importance of, none of, had that phrase about low interest rates, but but basically the framework of the law was set out targets for the money supply and credit and stick to them, and report to the Congress why you're doing it that way. Uh,
0: And what about uh, some of the other? I guess, more innovative ideas that have come out of monetary policy since the crisis. Uh, so the combination of quantitative easing, forward guidance, tinkering with the language to try to manage expectations of what monetary policy in the future would be and how it would react to changes in the economy. What's your basic view on uh, some of these yeah, newer ideas?
1: Uh, I think there's business about uh, forward guidance, all that stuff comes out of the economics classroom, and it's not very helpful. I think they've kind of discovered that themselves. You know, the inconvenience is if you projected something and it doesn't happen, it doesn't do the credibility of the institution all that much good, among other things, and you end up confusing people when you talk too much about what you're going to do. I think it's very important, and I resent it when people think that we were secretive, I spent my whole time at the Federal Reserve being perfectly clear that our objective was price (laughs) stability. Nobody should doubt that. And I didn't want a lot of discussion. That was uh, the general purpose. I don't think you can pin it down on a particular number. Uh, You know, what difference is the figure itself isn't accurate enough to say it should be 2% as opposed to 1% or 3% or 0%. So long as you get it low enough, consistently enough, as we have done, that's good. I don't worry one bit that one one measure of inflation is only 1.5%. we got to get it up to 2%. Why? I mean, <laughs> or some other measure is 1%. Another measure is already over 2%.
0: The
1: real world doesn't permit that degree of precision. In statistics that are themselves faulty.
0: Uh, we're running out of time, so I've just well, got a couple you're of more out questions. You real oratory.
1: <laughs> you didn't go back to all the other things I did in the Treasury.
0: All the other things that you did tra- <laughs> at Treasury. What did we leave out? What do you want to? What do you want to emphasize here? Oh, I did a lot of it. You know. It's, well, it's well your, what have we forgotten?
1: Well, it's, it's routine now. The Treasury never gets no notice. It, it auctions off its securities, right? Didn't used to. Mm-hmm. First auctioned off it's securities when I was under secretary of monetary affairs. <laughs> it always auctioned off treasury bills, but it did not auction off bonds and notes, which created some problems. And
0: Wait, take us through it. How, how did it issue uh, bonds and notes?
1: It said, treasury has an offer. We invite you to bid for $3 billion, whatever it is, uh, treasury notes maturing on December 31st. 20019 at three and two-eighths percent, three and a quarter percent. Go and get them, which created a risk that nobody comes. (laughs) It was awkward. It was awkward for monetary policy because they didn't want to change anything for a few weeks before or a few weeks after.
0: If they weren't auctioned, how were they priced? Well, they were priced out of your head. Out you had You had to calculate it in advance? Okay. Oh, I
1: mean, you had to make a judgment. You know what the market was. Yeah. And it was the way a private firm would underwrite Exxon bonds or AT&T bonds. You make a judgment about what the market is.
0: What views of yours changed throughout your, uh, your career in public life? Oh, I used to be a great inflationist. You used to be an inflationist? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I think you're pulling my leg on that
1: one. <laughs> I don't know. I just think things probably have gotten... They were simpler in my day. They were certainly simpler in the technicalities of the financial markets. You see what's going on today? I think the politics was simpler too, way. It certainly more constructive than what we've seen recently. It makes it
0: terribly difficult now with this
1: polarization, rather weird electoral...
0: Do you think polarization's definitely gotten a lot worse uh, than in your day? No question. Had to be pretty bad under Nixon, though, right?
1: Yeah, but there wasn't. I mean, Nixon had a problem. Nixon got uh, almost impeached. He had forced to resign. Uh, But that was over Watergate. It was a crazy thing to do. Uh, But, you know, I'm going my memory now. There was quite a lot of sort of constructive legislation, the whole venture into China was, uh, wasn't that antagonism about international policy that there is now?
0: Nixon, that there was less antagonism about yeah, international right. policy I, I, back I don't then. I
1: remember now the Democrats didn't rise in wrath and said, you're crazy going to China, you're destroying America and so forth. Uh, the Vietnam War was a miserable thing, but it was kind of a bi- <laughs> bipartisan misery, that does
0: seem to be a, a strain that runs throughout your career that you are an internationalist uh, not just about exchange rates but about just taking into account more cosmopolitan concerns is that how you describe yourself
1: well I certainly yeah I think we live in a world where I look I grew up in World War two after World War two had my initial important responsibilities in the Treasury when the United States was the young question leader of the world and we thought anyway that the future of the world depended on what the, what the United States was doing. And that was kind of acknowledged wisdom anyway. And I am for That's changed in a way I think that's unfortunate. Do
0: you think the U.S. should still be the guarantor of well, the global I don't see liberal order? anybody else out
1: there to pick it up. And it's more that is more difficult now. And it gets impossible You have all this domestic friction. Uh, you, know, you had to trade legislation through different administrations. You were Nixon, I guess. Uh, Nixon took great pride at one point in the fact that uh, social uh, entitlement spending had gone up above other spending. I think it, it increased all of the domestic spending. <laughs> and he presented that as a as a great triumph. <laughs> don't have that anymore.
0: If that was, if there was one thing you could fix about the domestic U.S. economy, would it be uh, the deficit? Would that be the first thing or would it be well, something else? I think the deficit is a,
1: a big problem in the long run. It's not the problem for the moment.
0: Okay. Look, the
1: tax system certainly is broken and that needs to be fixed. I would think maybe you could get agreement on it. You should be able to get agreement on it. I don't see that you can in the present state. <laughs> Antagonism, but you got to change the corporate tax system—not precisely the way that business wants it changed, in my opinion—but in a way that they ought to like. You got to the income tax system; it's got too many loopholes and all the rest.
0: Is that why you favor a consumption tax? Yeah, well, Part I, of the game. I,
1: well, I didn't know you knew that, but that's right. I, if I had my druthers, but I am about to say, I think it's too radical. I, I would do a consumption tax. I keep income tax for very rich people, but. I would have some kind of a consumption tax, yes. I think it's a more efficient, and in the end, more equitable kind of tax. The Republicans don't like it because they think it raises too much money, and Democrats don't like it because they think it hurts the uh, poor people. So that's why we never, we're the only country in the world that doesn't do it. Mm-hmm.
0: Any any regrets in your career? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: probably regret that I'm sitting here talking to you for <laughs> I hope not. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there are some, but I don't <laughs> None come to no, mind. No, they're you know obviously they see some mistakes. We had that whole business of credit controls. That credit controls. I, I didn't like back in. Gee, good. You don't even think about them. Everybody's forgotten them. We had credit controls that we put on at at Mister Carter's uh, request. What were the controls? Well, we didn't control much, but they had a big psychological. <laughs> uh, we designed them not to control much. But people stopped spending for a few months because they thought it was so to borrow money. And, yeah, that's what gave us a little dip in the economy. It was a rather sharp dip, but it wasn't long-lasting. Look, I'm sure I don't want to reveal all my other secrets of all the mistakes I made. Okay, uh, you should have... Uh, yeah, they're very few, but I'm going to keep them Okay. Um, what's, uh,
0: what's next then? You, you mentioned that you have a report coming out. Are you going to be spending a lot of time well, now on governance? Uh, yes, on other I've been spending been all my about?
1: time. I, I decided I would take my ill gotten gains, modest as they may be compared to other people. Yes, by all means, you could. You come and interview me for an hour. You don't even know about... The, the Volker Alliance.
0: No, of course we do. Of course you do. Well,
1: we you do. better describe it.
0: Uh, what what well, do I you think, What do you wish for the Volker Alliance? Well, I think
1: not enough attention is paid to straightforward problems of public management. Public administration is even a bad word. That's part of the reason why we're in such a mess and the lack of confidence and government. Government makes too many ordinary mistakes. I mean, what are we doing with? Uh, the latest is Flint, get the local government, the state government, and the federal government all screwing it up I, together I, for something that, you know, doesn't take genius to solve or anticipate, but go back, and they, this is bipartisan, go back to Katrina, the Republicans screwed up the administration of the federal emergency management thing. Uh, what happened with the oil spill? We got an agency that's supposed to be looking out for those kinds of things. Where were they? They were, they were asleep. Uh, what about the introduction of Obamacare, which was technically screwed up? Whatever you think about Obamacare, <laughs> it was not efficiently administered. We put out, we published a, one of our member group of. Uh, a report on, I think, 42 big administrative screw-ups since the year 2000, and some of them aren't very big, but they get a lot of attention too. Like, what are we doing with Secret Service men running into the White House lawn or visiting <laughs> prostitutes in oh. Bogota and stuff? I mean, where's the discipline here with Great God, Secret Service? But my motto, is, you know. The universities has not been a popular subject. Uh strong university, Kennedy School, Princeton, Berkeley, California, all have, University of Southern California all have schools or it used to be called public administration, but they it doesn't have status that it should have. They you know, want to talk about war and peace or poverty or something.
0: It's not sexy enough in other words. That's right. It's not it's,
1: but my motto I picked up from Thomas Jefferson, which is, I attempt to repair. It's a lovely quotation. Vision. We've got lots of vision. I used to have lots of vision in this country. Vision without execution is hallucination.
0: Vision without execution is hallucination. Thomas Jefferson.
1: No, no. Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison. Yeah, the great okay. inventor, the of course, great visionary. Course. But he knew that execution was the key to success, and I think we've forgotten that. I and mean, what do you do when, you know, 20% of the people, only, only 20% of the people, according to survey after survey, have any confidence that the government will do the right thing most of the time.
0: And that is the end of our chat with Paul Volcker. If you want to give us feedback, you can reach us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number, so country code is plus one. You can also write us at alphachatterbox at ft.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. It helps people find the show. Or you can tweet me directly at Garcia. Thanks, as always, to Amy Keen, who produced and edited this podcast. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again for another episode of Alpha Chatterbox in a couple of weeks.